0: John chapter 16, we'll begin reading with verse 16. Jesus said, A little while, and you will not see Me. And again, a little while, and you will see Me, because I go to the Father. Then some of His disciples said among themselves, What is this that He says to us, A little while, and you will not see Me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves what I said, a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full." Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for your word. For the supernatural work it can do and has done in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that, yeah, that that work would continue today. Lord, I know that there are people here who have sorrow in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would do for them what you did for the disciples, and turned their sorrow into joy. Lord, we thank you for the comfort and the peace that we have resting in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that your Spirit would do your work in our hearts through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We know well by now from our study in these last few chapters that the disciples are distraught, to say the least. Jesus is leaving. He's talked about it all throughout his ministry, but now they've come to a point that they know he's serious. Now they can tell that he means soon. They've asked questions, Jesus has given answers. And the disciples are concerned about what this means for them. What do you mean you're leaving? What are we supposed to do? What about the kingdom? We've spent three years of our lives following you, and you're just going to come here and tell us that you're leaving. You're going away we saw last week in verse 5 that Jesus finally addressed their focus on themselves. He said, but now I go away to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? They're not so much concerned about Jesus as they are about what effect it's going to have on them, but He does acknowledge their sorrow. He said in verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The disciples were full of sorrow. Sorrow had so invaded their hearts that all optimism, all light, all hope has been pushed out. They're full of sorrow. Distressing, depressing, hopeless sorrow. And when we come to passages like this, I'll just make a personal comment here. and When we hear sermons that deal with texts like this, like how Jesus addresses sorrow and how the Bible addresses sorrow, it's easy to tune out the things that we don't feel like apply to us right now. You know, my life is pretty great. I'm, I'm in good health. My family's happy. I've got a little money in the bank. My job is secure. Things are just overall going well for me right now. I don't really need a sermon on how Jesus handled his disciples' sorrow. I'm not sad. Now you would never say those words with your lips. You would never say that you didn't need a sermon or didn't need God's word. But it is an attitude that we tend to have in our hearts. And so I want to simply remind you that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. If things are going well for you, if you're not experiencing any sorrow right now, let me assure you, as others in this congregation certainly would, you will. You will experience sorrow. So regardless of your current situation in life, whether your heart is full of happiness or, like the disciples, it's full of sorrow, hear the Word of God now so that when the time comes that you need it, the Holy Spirit can bring His Word to your mind and give you the help that you need. So as we come to this passage today, this is what we see. Jesus is sympathetically comforting His disciples. And He assures them that the very cause of their temporary sorrow will become the source of permanent joy. That's what we see here. Now, how does He do this? Let me show you three things that Jesus does to accomplish this. Number one, He comes to them in their confusion. He comes to them in their confusion. Now, at this point in the conversation, Jesus makes what really is an intentionally cryptic statement. He said in verse 16, A little while, and you will not see Me. And again a little while, and you will see Me, because I go to the Father. Now, for us... We have the benefit of hindsight. We have the whole book. We can understand what Jesus is saying. There are three main interpretations about what Jesus is saying here. One, the first interpretation, Jesus says, "...a little while and you won't see Me." And that would refer to the time between this night and His ascension, when He goes back to the Father. And then when He says, "...a little while you will see Me," This interpretation would say that that refers to the second coming. When He comes again. Maybe that's the case. I don't think so. Mainly because the disciples won't be here when He comes. They're already dead. A second interpretation of the passage that a little while and you won't see me is still His ascension, is going back to the Father, but the little while and you will see me is a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily seeing Jesus physically, but it's knowing Him and communing with Him by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer. That very well may be what Jesus is saying. There are good, faithful Bible teachers who hold that position. I, however, take a, a third view. A third interpretation is this. A little while and you won't see me is His death. That's only a few hours away. It really will only be a little while, and Jesus will leave his disciples. But then, in just a little while longer, he says, you will see me. And that, I believe, is they're seeing him after the resurrection, just on Sunday. And while we can work through that in our own minds and with what we know of the Scriptures, we can come to a conclusion about what Jesus means when He says this. But whichever view you take, it really doesn't matter to the disciples because to them, they're just confused. They don't have a category in their mind for what Jesus is saying. He's supposed to be here to stay. He is supposed to establish his kingdom. He's supposed to put Israel back on the map and rule over the earth. And they're confused. So they discuss their lack of understanding among themselves. Verse 17 Some of the disciples said among themselves, What is it that he says, A little while and you'll not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? In verse 18, What is it that he says, A little while? We don't know what He means. We don't know what He's saying. If you're ignorant of something and not, un- not sure of what something means, it's not really profitable to talk to other people who don't know what it means either. The disciples just discussed among themselves, why didn't they just ask Jesus? Maybe they were embarrassed. Maybe they didn't want to ask any more questions. We know what that's like, I think. To feel like we've asked too many questions, we feel like we're starting to annoy someone, so we don't wanna we don't wanna ask anything else, we've we've hit our limit. Maybe they felt like they wanted to ask, but they really weren't sure if they wanted to hear the answer. Some of you have felt like that, I'm sure. You know, you wanna say, Well what's what's the diagnosis, Doc? But you're actually kind of afraid of what he might say. So you're hesitant to ask. All we really know is that the disciples were sorrowful and that this is where we see Jesus express his sympathy. It really is wonderful to see this. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? Now, Jesus knew what they wanted. He knew they were discussing His words among themselves. He knew that they could have just come and asked Him. He knew that they were full of sorrow. Now, He could have called them out harshly. Guys, come on. Figure it out. You've been with me for over three years. Haven't you been listening? He could have downplayed their sorrow. Guys, we're talking about three days. I mean, I'm coming back. You get, you get to run off and hide for a couple of days. I'm the one who's going to be beaten and mocked and tried and crucified and buried. If anybody should have sorrow here, it's me. What are you guys complaining about? But he didn't do any of that. On the night when he was most sorrowful, he took concern for their sorrow. He was sympathetic to them. He took the initiative to come to them in their confusion when they wouldn't come to him. In their sorrow, he showed them sympathy. That's just how Jesus is. And not just with the 11 disciples in the room, but he's that way with us too, right? Jesus is sympathetic towards us. He is patient. He is kind. He doesn't talk down to us. Haven't you figured it out yet? How long have you been a Christian again? Haven't you learned to trust me? What's wrong with you? No, He doesn't do that. He comes to you in your confusion, when you're full of sorrow, when you don't understand why your life is going the way it's going, and He says to you, like He says to the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. He takes the initiative. He takes the first step. When you don't feel like you can go to Him, rest assured, He is able and willing to come to you. Number two, He comforts them in their sorrow. Now Jesus knows exactly what His disciples need. He knows exactly what we need. And notice that He doesn't give them an explanation of what he said. He doesn't explain this statement that they're so confused about. Now that's an important lesson for us to learn sooner rather than later is that we don't have to know everything. Yes, we like explanations. We like answers. We like to know what God is doing, how it's going to affect us. We want to know what's going on. But God knows exactly what we need. He'll give us what we need, when we need it, and it doesn't always come with an explanation. Jesus doesn't offer to explain what He said. That's not what they need right now. Instead, He addresses their sorrow. He knows that they need comfort. And that's exactly what He gives them. Look at verse 20, the first part. He says, Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Do you feel comforted yet? You're going to weep? You're going to cry, you're going to lament. That word lament refers to that loud wailing that was customary to express when someone died. The Greek word literally means to sing a dirge, to sing a lament. You're going to weep, you're going to cry, you're going to lament. Oh, and by the way, the world will rejoice. While you don't see me, while you're weeping and you're lamenting, the world is going to be having a party. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus died, isn't it? The disciples went into hiding. They were at the point of despair. But the Jewish leaders, man, we got rid of that problem. We got rid of that teacher. We got rid of that guy that was taking all of our followers. They were excited. How's Jesus doing on comforting His disciples so far? You're going to weep. The world's going to rejoice. Read the rest of the verse. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Things are going to get worse before they get better. They're sorrowful now, and their sorrow will increase. But, Jesus says, their sorrow will be turned into joy. Not that the sorrow will be taken away and replaced with joy. Not that the thing that causes sorrow will be stopped and something else is going to happen to bring them joy. No, their sorrow will be turned into joy. The thing that causes sorrow will be turned into something that brings joy. It will become joy. What had been their cause for sorrow will become the very foundation, the very source of their deepest joy. The world rejoiced, but the rejoicing of the world was short-lived. Evil apparently won, but the apparent victory of evil was short-lived. The disciples were sorrowful, but their sorrow was short-lived. In fact, it would be, as Jesus said, only a little while, and they would see Him. He gives an illustration in verse 21, an analogy. He says, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. That really is a perfect illustration. And we should expect nothing less from a perfect teacher, the perfect Son of God. Now, obviously, I've never given birth, but uh, I've seen it done a couple of times up close. And I'll agree with one New Testament scholar who wrote about this verse, and he said, He talked about uh, her hour for giving birth, which she knows is like a living death. Would you women say amen? amen? A living death. I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, even in the age of modern medicine, even in the world of epidurals, the woman's body, the trauma that it goes through is incredible. And at the moment that you're delivering that child, you're thinking, why did we do this? (laughs) Kelby's grandmother, I didn't ask her if I could say this. In fact, it just came to mind. I used to say, and this was right after Joel was born. She said, yeah, you got an epidural when we had babies. We just laid on the table and hoped we didn't die. I mean, it really is amazing how far we've come in medicine, but still how much the, the body goes through. The pain, the sorrow, the anguish. But when the child is born, yeah, you're still hurting. Yeah, you've still got some recovery time. But really, that doesn't matter anymore. The very thing that had caused so much sorrow has become the thing that has brought your greatest joy. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the most sorrowful and painful thing that anyone had ever gone through. He suffered physically. He was beaten to the point that he didn't even look like a man. He had thorns puncturing his forehead. He had nails through his hands and through his feet. He didn't just suffer physically, he suffered emotionally. He was mocked. He was given an unfair trial. He was abandoned by his disciples. He didn't just suffer physically and he didn't just suffer emotionally, but he suffered the very wrath of God. All the judgment that God had stored up for sinners, the the judgment that your sin would accrue and the judgment that my sin would accrue was all poured out on Jesus on the cross. He suffered in unimaginable ways, but how did He endure? How did He endure the suffering? Hebrews 12.2 says, It was for the joy that was set before Him. That He endured the cross. He knew that the cross wouldn't last forever. He knew that the cross would be the path to glorification. It would be through the cross, through this impossible suffering, that He would receive His greatest glory. His sorrow would be turned into joy. Now after the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were sorrowful. They despaired, they were hopeless. But Jesus had said to them in verse 22, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Just like the pains of a woman in childbirth, the sorrow is real. The pain is intense, but it is temporary. It's just a little while. And then it leads. It becomes lasting joy. Notice there in verse 22, he said, I will see you again. That's different than what he said in verse 16, where he says, you will see me. He says, I will come to see you. That's the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus as a result of the cross. When we know Him, even when we have sorrow, our hearts rejoice. And no one, no one can take that joy away from us. Jesus is comforting His disciples, but it ought to come for us as well. Death and hell and Satan himself could not defeat Jesus. What makes you think he's going to let your little problems take you down? If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. The Spirit of the same Christ who was with the disciples. The Spirit of the same Christ who endured the cross for you and rose from the dead. The joy that comes from the death and the resurrection is a permanent possession of every disciple of Jesus Christ. Remember the psalm we read at the beginning of the service, verse 4 and 5 of Psalm 30. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy Comes in the morning. Just like the disciples. Our sorrow is only for a little while. It kind of makes you wonder what would have been different if Jesus had told the disciples everything's going to be okay by Sunday. I mean, that's such a short time. But... Their world crumbled right in front of them. They could see no end in sight to their pain, to their sorrow. But, I mean, everything was better than before in just a couple of days. It seemed like their sorrow would never end. But when the day of resurrection came, their sorrow became everlasting joy. Listen to me. Your sorrow is only for a little while you don't know how long it's going to last. It will seem like that season of life will never come to an end. It's going to be like this forever. That's what we think. It may seem like this season will never come to an end, but when the day of that final resurrection comes... When Jesus returns to gather His people to Himself to live with Him forever, your sorrow will be turned into everlasting joy. I mean, what's, what's 20 or 50 or 100 years of pain compared to an eternity of paradise with God? But you don't have to wait until you see Jesus to have joy. Did you know that? You don't have to be miserable all through the Christian life and say, Well, it'll get better when Jesus comes. You see, we have an advantage over the disciples. We know what's going to happen. We believe what the Bible says. We have God's holy and inerrant written word. We have the Bible... We don't have to wait until heaven to have joy. We can live our lives in joyful expectation of the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that Christ has died for our sins. We know that our greatest problem, our sin problem, has already been dealt with. The sorrows you experience in this life are nothing compared to the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven, that your guilt is removed, and that you have an eternal home with the Savior waiting for you. That certainly is comfort in any sorrow. Number three, He commands them concerning their prayers. He comes to them in their confusion. He comforts them in their sorrow. And he commands them concerning their prayers. Look at verse 23 and 24. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I'll be brief here. We'll plan on revisiting these two verses next week when we pick up the next section. But up to this point, the disciples have asked Jesus everything. Whatever came into their minds, whatever they had need of, whatever question they had, they asked Him. He was there with them. But after the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension, that changed. He wasn't with them any longer. Jesus said, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. Now it's okay to pray to Jesus sometimes. It's okay to to once in a while pray to the Holy Spirit. But Jesus established the normative pattern for prayer that we should pray to the Father. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. And we come to the Father, we have direct access to the heavenly Father only in Jesus' name. So we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Now we've talked before about what that means. It's not a magical formula that if you just say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, it automatically gets answered. No, to pray in Jesus' name means that you come to the Father, one, on His merit and not your own. We can only come to Him because of what Jesus has done for us. None of us deserve and none of us have the right on our own standing to come before the Father. We come on Jesus' merit, not our own, but also we come with our requests in alignment with the nature and the will of Jesus Himself. In other words, we pray for things as Jesus would pray for them. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And then he makes that same promise that he already made back in chapter 15. He says, ask and you will receive. When we pray in Jesus' name, on His merit and in accordance with His will, we can be assured God will answer our prayers. And to what end does He command us to do this? What have we been talking about this whole time? What's the purpose of such a prayer? That your joy may be full. Let me say this simply, the life that is characterized by joy, even in the midst of sorrows, is one that is marked by faithful prayer. If you don't have joy, if all you can seem to find in your life is sorrow, you can't see anything but the bad, let me ask you, how is your prayer life? Is your life one that is marked by prayer? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If you are praying, are you praying with a sense of personal entitlement? Are you praying only that your own will be done? If we will have joy, lasting, full joy, we must pray like Jesus prayed. And what did Jesus pray in His greatest hour of sorrow? Not my will, but thine be done. It contradicts human reason. It doesn't make sense in these brains of ours but it's the prayer of humble submission to God that will lead to lasting joy, even in the midst of the greatest of sorrows. Let me conclude with this. To the the unbeliever, if any of you have not yet been born again, whatever sorrow you experience in this life, Your rejection of God and your sin that offends him will lead to an even greater sorrow in eternity. Whatever sorrow you live in this life really is the best life you'll ever live. Because you have sinned, you have offended a holy and a righteous God who demands perfection because he is perfection. There is judgment to come for those who reject him. Who continue in their sins without repentance. But Jesus loved you, and He came and He gave His life for you. He experienced the sorrow that you deserve so that you wouldn't have to go through it. Yeah, we'll have tough times in this world, but that eternal sorrow, that eternal judgment, that hell that awaits unbelievers, Jesus took the wrath of God for you. If you will repent and put your faith, your trust, In Jesus Christ alone, He will forgive you. Your life will still have its problems. Things won't go perfect for you in this life, but you can have lasting and permanent joy knowing that your sins are forgiven and that when this life comes to an end, you live with Him forever. To the Christian, Jesus comes to us in our confusion. He comforts us in our sorrow. And even our greatest sorrows will be turned into even greater joys. And we can experience that joy even now in this life by submitting our wills to God, coming to Him humbly in prayer, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for the promises of your word that though weeping may endure for a night and it may indeed endure for a long, hard night, but even if weeping endures for the night, we can be sure that joy comes in the morning. We thank you for Jesus who took our greatest sorrows on himself? He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He lived the sinless life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could have our guilt removed. We can have fellowship with you, not just in this life, but for all eternity. And Lord, I pray that we as your people would rest. In that greatest of truths, submit our wills to you in humble prayer that our joy may be full. In Jesus' name, amen.